Monday through Thursday, 6 to 8. Fridays, 4 to 6. Always available after the fact on Spotify. Eddie Kalegi, Gideon Fox, Alec Krauthammel, Jake Maestel. Fun hour one. We talked some Rutgers basketball, did our locks, looked at some uh, WRSU crew stats as well. But let's shift to the NFL. Yesterday was a busy day on the gridiron. It was the franchise tag deadline day. And there were a lot of storylines to be followed. The quarterback market has gotten thinner It all started with Derek Carr signing with the New Orleans Saints. Finally, an NFC South team has a quarterback, uh, so it kind of set off a chain reaction. Seahawks retained Geno Smith. And then, little backstory for me, I was taking a sports management class, and they were doing, like, the introductions thing, and the class started at 3.50, and I was the second person, and one of the things we had to say, since it was a sports management class, is one trade or franchise tag move we wanted to see in the NFL offseason. I said, I wanted the Giants to see, as an Eagles fan, see the Giants overpay for Daniel Jones. What happens five minutes later? The New York Giants overpaid for Daniel Jones, so... Don't call me a savant, but uh, it did happen. And I, I, I just want to say, I do not care that Geno Smith set the market high or Derek Carr set the market high or whatever, or people saying, oh, this is what quarterbacks get paid now. It's going to look like a good deal in three years. Daniel Jones had one good season, and now he's going to get paid $40 million a year. I I don't know. It, it's I know only $82 million of that is guaranteed. But I, I've seen guys get paid more for less. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like, like one good season plus some really good flashes last year in his rookie season. I've seen guys get paid more for less productive play overall over a larger span of time. To be perfectly honest with you, I mean, I think back, I think back to what was what was a. I mean, I guess I guess one thing is like let let's look at Derek Carr, who has been debatably about as good as Daniel Jones overall, just a little more consistent. I mean, Derek Carr's been a at least a proven. I, I know Derek Carr's flaws, but Derek Carr has been a proven, relatively successful starting quarterback in the NFL for ten years. Daniel Jones, Giants didn't know if they could commit to him for the first three years of his career, and then has a solid year where. He, I know he didn't have a ton of weapons, but it's because largely because of the coaching and the defense and Saquon staying healthy as to why he was able to get there. I know he had a good playoff game against the Vikings, but I, I don't okay. know. Okay, but can we talk about Jimmy Garoppolo getting paid like, what was it, like $50 million a year for six good games with the 49ers well, the, in 2017. Well, the 49ers are also insane, and the 49ers, it doesn't matter who their quarterback is because they'll still go all the way to the NFC Championship because that's just how they function. They are a plug-and-play. They, they are a plug-and-play situation. The Giants are not a plug-and-play situation. That's true. I, I So here's what I'm going to say as a Giants fan. I do think they overpaid for Daniel Jones, but I also believe that with the market set the way it was, they weren't going to be able to get him back without overpaying. And the other options at quarterback are are so much worse that it really is more worth it just to bring him back for for that cost than it is to either try and find another quarterback and overpay for them or 
or worse, hope to find someone in either this year or next year's draft and just kind of, you know, let this entire next season go because after a playoff season, that's not exactly the way you want things to go. There was also the there was also to keep in mind the thing with Saquon Barkley. I think if Saquon Barkley wasn't someone that they also are worrying about trying to resign, they probably would have just franchise tagged Daniel Jones. But they are they do have to worry about signing Saquon Barkley and they aren't quite as close with him on reaching an extension, so they had to make a choice and it's just cheaper to franchise tag Barkley and re sign Daniel Jones than the other way around in the immediate short term. Also, I I think it's just generally a good move to keep him around because he already has chemistry with this coaching staff, with this team. That's I mean, remember he's had like a different like four different offensive systems in his time with the Giants. Let's see what he can do actually developing in one for multiple years at a time. <laughs> I it could be worth it in the long run. It is to, it is an overpay right this minute, but it could be worth it in 4 years. <laughs> Now, the one thing I will side with, I just want to say, is the people who are saying they should have franchised Daniel Jones and paid Saquon. I think if you were going to choose one or the other, it's smarter to pay Daniel Jones because Saquon Barkley is an even bigger question with his health. At least Daniel Jones has stayed mostly healthy throughout his career. And also, there's that statistic that's been going around over the last 15 Super Bowl winners, how much they're starting running back was paid and there has not been a Super Bowl winner in the last 15 years who has had a running back who made more than two and a half million dollars that season so uh quarterback is a much more valuable position uh so I just want to say that yeah and for the Giants to you know on the surface four year 160 million dollars is a lot and especially you know like you guys have been saying Daniel Jones hasn't exactly been lighting the world on fire since he was drafted um but you know when you take a deeper look into the actual contract it's $82 million, $82 million guaranteed out of that $160 million, and all of it is in the first two years. So it's really not as much of an overpay as people thought at first. Um, so, you know, if they, you know, if two years in they say, you know, all right, Daniel, or maybe one or two years in they say, all right, Daniel Jones really isn't the guy, you know, maybe after next year, um, you can say, okay, we can get out of this contract without, you know, taking a, a, a debilitating hit on our cap um, after two seasons. Uh, and then, you know, say you draft someone, you know, you either start him or let Daniel Jones play another year um, for, the, for the 2024 season, and then you can try to let Daniel Jones go. And if he, play, if he lives up to the contract, great. It's, then you can have the full four-year deal and then take it from there. Um, and tagging Saquon, I mean, it's an unfortunate circumstance, uh, but if you want to – I felt like you really do need to keep Saquon around, at least for that first year. And unfortunately, like Eddie said, Saquon has been kind of a health question mark uh, for the last few years, so it's it's unfortunate for him because he really did not want that franchise tag. But I mean, that was probably as good of a move as the Giants could have made. I mean, who does want to be franchise exactly. tag? Right? Everybody wants the opportunity to be able to test the market and get and secure a long term deal, get what they know that they're worth, or at least what the market is telling them that they're worth. Not everybody gets paid exactly what they're worth. A lot of guys do get overpaid, but it. You know, everybody wants that opportunity, and right now Saquon Barkley isn't getting it. So, of course, of course, it's it's not what he wanted. He's probably not super happy about it, but he is going to be a giant for at least one more season. Hopefully, if he stays healthy and cap allowing, they'll be able to, you know, strike up a 
a semi-long-term deal with him to make him a giant effectively for at least most of the rest of his career because most running backs don't spend all their time with one, spend their entire careers with one team anymore. I mean, we're even seeing, it's looking like Derrick Henry is probably not going to stay with the Titans. So, you know, he's not going to be a giant forever, but it, he is the team captain. You would like to see him stay in New York, you know, at least, at the very least, let him stay in New York because if he's not going to play for a Giants, let him play for the team he grew up rooting for, which is the Jets. <laughs> did he really grow up a Jets fan? I actually yes, didn't he did, know that. Actually. Uh, That's kind of crazy. I remember in right after he was drafted, he was asked about it. He said he grew up a Jets fan. That's kind of wild. He was born but, uh, in the Bronx wow. before he moved to Lehigh Valley. <laughs> yeah, speaking of, speaking of the Jets, they, they spoke with, I believe, Aaron Rodgers uh, not too long ago, so they're still trying to get him. Um Quinn and Williams and Robert Sala, you know, making some efforts to try to get the get that quarterback. Seems like Zach Wilson is all but done in New York, so I guess we'll see where that goes. Here's the difference between the Giants and Jets, though. The Jets have the foundation of a roster, if it stays healthy, that really all they need is a quarterback. The Giants, on the other hand, are in a situation where Daniel Jones or not, there's still a lot of holes in that team. They need to get better receivers. I still think there are some improvements the defense can make. I still think there are improvements the offensive line can make. And Saquon is not going to be the permanent answer at running back. My worry with this Daniel Jones contract is the $82 million guaranteed are front-loaded, which means they're going to be paying most of that guaranteed salary in these first two years. With that being the case, they're going to have less available cap to try to improve the team around him and they made the playoffs this year so they're not going to really have those home runs in the draft that they did last year or the years when they had early top picks because they made the playoffs and they're going to be further down in the draft order I'm not saying that Joe Schoen won't be able to draft well because he's proven he can but it's the the pool to pick from is going to be difficult so as much as some people are saying you know it's it's a smart decision to pay him the guaranteed money up front that means you still have the chance, if it doesn't work out, to m- potentially move Daniel Jones in two years because the all the guaranteed money is already going to be done, so whatever team acquires him is going to have to pay him less. But d- you shouldn't be banking on failure from Daniel Jones when you're making this sort of contract. You have to be prepared for these next two years, and I feel like they're setting too much money aside to pay Daniel Jones now to be able to improve the team around him which is what they really need to do because part of the reason they didn't make the a deep run last year and fell apart in the second half of the season is because Daniel Jones had no weapons the defense did not look as sharp as the year went on and the offensive line still didn't protect Daniel Jones to the level that it should I do want to say a couple things to that first of all first of all um they there was, in terms of receiving weapons, there there were some injury issues on that front. Sterling Shepard did get injured at the very beginning of the season towards ACL, was out the entire year. He's probably not coming back unless it's on a veteran minimum, and he's probably not going to be at the same capacity that he was before these last few injury plague seasons, but he was a reliable weapon for the team. There was also Isaiah Hodgins who emerged at the back end of the season. He'll probably be like a their number two receiver on the outside. And there was also the rookie Wondell Robinson last year who also went down with an ACL injury. They are replacing, they are getting a new, like, turf at MetLife Stadium. I think it's some kind of, like, grass turf hybrid. I'm not entirely sure what, but they're replacing 
the the old turf that was so horrible that every single player in the league has complained about. So hopefully that will solve things a little bit on both sides of the ball for both the Giants and the Jets. Um, but I do think that the Giants need to get a true number one receiver to go along with Wondell Robinson and Isaiah Hodgins. They have two really good guys there if they can get like a, a solid number one guy. I mean, I, I look back in past seasons, this is kind of the, the type of core that they had in both of their last two Super Bowl runs with a solid number two outside receiver, a really good slot receiver, and then just a really freakishly talented number one outside receiver. So they can get something like that again to really compliment Daniel Jones. That would, that would be really good. I think we could really start to see what he can do throwing the ball. Obviously they expected Kenny Galladay to be that guy for the Giants, but now he's not a Giant anymore. He's a free agent. They just cut ties with him, cut their losses, which, I mean, I think is a good thing because it opens up a roster spot, and the Giants will now have better cap position going forward after this season. They're going to take a bit of a hit this year, but they'll have better cap going forward because they won't have to be paying him $72 million to drop the ball right in front of my face at MetLife Stadium. And I guess now we can kind of go over some of the other players that uh, that got tagged as the uh, the deadline was yesterday. Oh yeah, Tony um, Pollard got tagged. That surprised me. He did. Yeah, I like that move a lot. I, I I've never believed in Zeke. I think Tony Pollard, coming from a fantasy perspective, I think there's there's always value having Tony Pollard on your team. But I just think Zeke is due for such a drop off. In production, and he's not—he's really not going to last much longer. I, mean, I like the move a lot. Had a drop off exactly, exactly, and it's—he can't control the ball. You look at Tony Pollard, who's a very, very talented running back, and could be a starter on a bunch of different NFL teams. He's just not because he's behind Ezekiel Elliott. Well, I think it's a good any, move. I don't think he is anymore. I think he's starting over well, Zeke these uh, days. And I the, guess they're kind of splitting one A and one B at this point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing too, I agree. This is a good move for the Cowboys. Making it a franchise tag and not like a multi-year contract, I think is a good move too. Because remember, Pollard got hurt in the Buccaneers game, so there's going to be questions about his health. So rather than making a long-term commitment, just tagging him, making sure he's there. Because the two-back set worked for them last year. There were times when Ezekiel Elliott was really strong. There were times when Tony Pollard was really strong. So having that versatility going into next season, I I like that move. And another one who was tagged was... A former Giant, Evan Ingram, now with the Jacksonville Jaguars, getting the non-exclusive franchise tag uh, after after having a career year with 73 catches for 766 yards and four touchdowns. He's set to earn $11.3 million next year. Uh, it seems like he's uh, resolved some of the issues that he, he was dealing with towards the end of his Giant tenure. It was a pretty good, really reliable so, weapon for Trevor Lawrence down the stretch. I'm a little bit mixed on this move. On one hand, I think it's a good move for Jacksonville because they don't have to pay him a big contract and because he did play really well for them this past season. On the other hand, with that franchise tag comes expectations. And Evan Engram, who was a first-round pick in the biggest media market in the world, did not meet the the lofty expectations that were placed on him the last time he had those kinds of lofty expectations. And Jacksonville's going to be expecting a lot out of him now with the playoff run, with the way he played in the postseason, with the way he played all year last year with Trevor Lawrence. I I do think that he I, – I think it'll probably work out for Jacksonville, but, I mean, knowing Evan Ingram, he could just end up dropping the ball on this one. <laughs> I like what you did there, especially in that Eagles game where he had the I don't game want in to his talk hands. About it, Alec. And, yeah, 
Uh, so next up, another player who was tagged, much like Tony Pollard and Saquon Barkley, another running back, Josh Jacobs, received a non-exclusive franchise tag from the Las Vegas Raiders. He had a career year last year, uh, much like some of the other players here. 1,653 rushing yards leading the NFL. He had a huge season, including almost three. I think he passed 300 total yards against the Seahawks, and uh, he had an 86-yard touchdown to seal that game in overtime. Still, still hurts. Did, did this hurts. move surprise anybody else? Because I know it surprised me. Um, I mean, not really. We kind of saw that coming because they wanted to keep him. They wanted to keep him, but again, like, I, I think running back to that extension is risky. I figured the Raiders were kind of transitioning into more of a rebuild mode, though. I didn't, I, I didn't think they were going to keep Josh Jacobs because I figured they would want to use that cap space to sign some younger guys and to, and to, well, potentially move. You know, just kind of start the rebuild process because I mean they've already moved on from Derek Carr they're in a transition period you know they just got a new GM got a new head coach you know this past off season not this one but this current one but the one before I just figured it would be uh did, did this move surprised me a little bit. I don't know what the Raiders are doing. First of all, first of all, they should have never gotten rid of Rich Basaccia. Number two, I don't know why they made the move for Devontae Adams. And now Devontae Adams went there because he wanted to play with Derek Carr because they both won the Fresno. And now Derek Carr's gone. So. Fun fact. Fun fact about that, by the way. Derek Carr and Devontae Adams played Rutgers back in 2013, their senior years. It was that week one game where I remember kicked watching off at like game. 10 o'clock at night. Yes. And I, Rutgers lost in triple overtime. I did not watch the entire game because I had a bedtime back then. But it was 2013. Yes. It was oh, the I, singular I, year that Rutgers played in the I NBA wasn't season. even watching college football at that point. <laughs> yeah, that game was... I wasn't uh, even watching NFL football t- that year. I'm pretty sure Devontae Adams had like 150 yards and three touchdowns or something in that game. But he's probably not going to be getting that now because who knows who the Raiders quarterback is even going to be. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Do understand. you believe in Jarrett Stidham? I do not believe in Jarrett Stidham. See, yeah. <laughs> he, had one, he had one good game against the Niners, and as crazy as that was, I think it, I think that game was you can chalk that up to San Francisco underestimating him and just not preparing that well for that game because that was a complete anomaly from what we saw from the 49ers defense the entire rest of the season. I like to call that interim head coach syndrome where it's like when a team fires a coach and they, they have like an, an internal hire as the interim for the remainder of the season when they fire the coach midseason, they always win the next game. It just always happens. I don't understand it. It just no matter what, they always win that first game. Um, so I think that's like you said, they kind of underestimate what Sim could do and what how uh, Josh McDaniels was going to game plan for him. Um, so... That's what I kind of chalk it up as. Yeah, I don't really know what they're doing either. Like, they have Max Crosby, who is probably one of the best edge rushers in the NFL, but the rest of their defense is kind of a disaster. I mean, they have Chandler um, Jones. But Chandler Jones, I mean, he Chandler had the touchdown. Jones, yeah, he had the greatest touchdown of the season. He did. Other than that, he's kind of washed him. Jacoby Myers had his moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't you, really know what they're doing. Your fantasy wide receivers were... were I, I, I'm, I feel so bad for you, Eddie. I know. Well, and, and my... Uh, I'm going to get mad about my fantasy team nope. again. It's, it's March, but... I lost. I would have made it to the championship, but I got mad at Jacoby Myers after that deci- after that throw, and I decided to just bench him that week. And I don't even remember who I started, but they got like two points, and Jacoby Myers had like seventeen. He took and that I, personally. I did. I took it personally. I, 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 daddy, daddy, notice me means business. We don't take we don't take lightly to stuff like that. Uh, and we'd already had our shenanigans with Champagne Mooney. So, uh, yeah. oh, th- thank you for the reminder. We don't, we, you know, we, we don't take shenanigans like that lightly, but back to the Raiders. Chandler yeah. Jones, I still think has something left in the tank, but the Raiders have big problems and 
I don't know if they're trying a rebuild. I don't really know what they're trying to do. The First of all, they're in a division that has the defending Super Bowl champion Patrick Mahomes, a top-five quarterback in the league in Justin Herbert, and the Broncos, who I think will be better than this past year because it can't get much worse than what just happened. Also, Sean Payton is an actually good head coach. Yes, and Russell Wilson with Sean Payton should be... Better. Better, at least <laughs> potentially playoff caliber. They should caliber. be able to score points on offense. Although they did lose Ejiro Evero. Uh, he went he went and joined Frank Reich's staff in Carolina. So that's a big loss on the defensive part. But they should stay, They still have talent on defense. Yeah. So they'll be a better team, in my opinion. They'll be fine. It's, they'll, they'll be fine. They have actually – didn't they just get Vance Joseph back as their D coordinator? I think they did, yeah. They he's did. not, so that's he's not their good. head coach anymore, no, but he's back in, in Denver yeah. as their D coordinator, once again having the time of his life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, what an iconic interview that was. You're <laughs> um, on the field. Um, but also, I, I don't think people talk about this enough. The Raiders, even though they beat the Patriots, they had, aside from that, they had the two most embarrassing losses of the season in yeah. the NFL last year. They lost to Jeff Saturday in his first game as a coach against his the Colts. His only team. win as a coach. His by only the way. win as a coach. And then three weeks after that on Thursday night football, they lost to Baker Mayfield, who had just been signed two days before by the Rams and didn't even know the playbook. That was sh- okay, but to be fair, Baker Mayfield with no knowledge of a playbook might be the greatest player we've ever seen. Okay, that that was that was such a bizarre game. I, I went to the bathroom. The Raiders were up by, like, two scores. I came out of the bathroom, and Baker Mayfield throws the game-winning touchdown. It was like, it was like what happened? Yeah. Like, um, I know the Raiders have been blowing these kinds of leads all season, but this is a new low. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I have no idea what the Raiders are doing. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Uh, the next player that got tagged was uh, for the Washington Commanders. Defensive tackle Deron Payne got the non-exclusive tag. Pretty good. You know, I not – Unlike some of the other players we've seen here, and another that we will see, nothing too eventful there. You know, a really good player getting franchise tagged. It yeah. is what it is. Not Doesn't much matter. to say there. I mean, they have Sam Howell. I don't, so. yeah. I don't like anybody on that Washington defensive line, so I'm really yeah. sad to see him go back. As uh, as Dennis Geisler said in our WRSU group me, uh, when we were talking about Daniel Jones versus uh, Gito Smith making a lot of money, uh, he said that Sam Howell is better than any of them, and he's only making $1 million. So, That's you true. Know. Also, uh, a quick update uh, on Big Ten basketball. Ohio State is currently up thirty-six to eighteen at halftime on Wisconsin. Wow! So that's ridiculous. Yeah, might, that's... might as well give you an update on uh, on Big East basketball as well. Seton Hall is up by two over DePaul with three twenty-five left to go in the game. Apparently, Tyree Samuel airballed the free throw. That's kind of and funny. Cal is currently only down eleven with six minutes left. Hey, you never know. Um, but the final player that got tagged. Uh, with the uh, with the franchise tag was the one and only Lamar Jackson of the Baltimore Ravens, the quarterback. Well, he didn't just get any ordinary franchise tag. He got the non-exclusive. Well, all these players got the non-exclusive franchise tag, but Lamar Jackson's non-exclusive franchise tag has been notable because of the fact that, you know, Lamar Jackson's the type of player that you will send two first-round picks to acquire with that non-exclusive franchise tag, right. which is how it works. Um, but really, really strangely... Like I want to say, about five teams have already said we won't pursue him, in like a trade, which is really really strange, um, because you know Lamar Jackson's won an MVP, is one of the most dynamic quarterbacks in the NFL, and multiple teams, like five teams, and most of which are in need of you know a difference maker at quarterback, are saying no, we're okay, we're we're not interested, we're not going to pursue him. The year after. Deshaun Watson was on the trade block, and teams were almost salivating over him. Yeah, I, I and let's look at those teams that. Set it. The Falcons, I think there's a chance Atlanta gives at least Desmond Ritter some sort of a shot. 
Miami, they still have Tua. Carolina. Hopefully, I, still have Tua. I, well, yeah. But Carolina, I, 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 I'm kind of surprised by that. Washington, as Joe Henry would say, they have Sam Howell. doesn't matter. Raiders, we've already delved into. So I'm looking more at the teams that are not on that list, that have not said that. One of them is Tampa Bay. Because the Bucks still have a good roster foundationally that could potentially make the playoffs. Some of it's getting older, specifically the defense and the receiving core. But Lamar Jackson could rejuvenate that if they could get him. And a reminder of what the non-exclusive franchise tag means is a team, he can negotiate with other teams. And they can offer deals, but the Ravens automatically get five days to match that deal. And based on the conversations we've seen from the Ravens front office and the disputes we've seen on social media between Ravens players and their own front office, I think there's an indication that Baltimore, for whatever reason, doesn't necessarily want to keep Lamar Jackson. And if the price is too high and a team offers some crazy amount of money, they're just not going to match it, I feel like. So Tampa Bay is a team I look at. I generally look at the NFC because the NFC quarterback situation is pretty bad right now especially if Aaron Rodgers ends up leaving and if Lamar Jackson goes to the NFC he instantly becomes a top three quarterback in the conference so and that's coming from someone who believes Lamar Jackson has a lot of flaws so I feel like Tampa Bay not being on this list is a team that maybe could make that move I also saw something else about maybe Detroit now the Lions had Jared Goff that this doesn't... past season the Lions have a decent roster I don't know. That's one I'd think about, too. I, I, I'm on the Jared Goff hype train with Detroit. I don't think that's a move they should make. I think he's building some good chemistry there in Detroit, and I think uh, give him another year in that system. I mean, remember, he did take the Rams to the Super Bowl. Now, here's my take on the situation, and I'm going to be putting on my tinfoil hat a bit here. <laughs> so, like we've been talking about, Lamar Jackson, uh, any team can sign. He's allowed to ne- negotiate with other teams, and the Ravens have the ability to match it. So... What happens is, so, you know, what Lamar Jackson wants, Lamar Jackson currently does not have an agent. He is self-representative. Um, and it seems like the one thing he's been looking for is a fully guaranteed contract, like the one that Deshaun Watson currently has with the Browns, where his $230 million uh, price tag is fully, fully guaranteed. seems like that's what he wants. Um, and when the Ravens gave Deshaun Watson that, you know, or when the Browns, excuse me, gave Deshaun Watson that fully guaranteed contract, the NFL world kind of took a step back like, whoa, whoa, what just happened here? Um, and now that, you know, Lamar Jackson wants that fully guaranteed, all these teams are like, okay, let's not give it to him because we don't want to set that precedent again after the Browns already did it last year. So all the teams are going to say, we're not in on this guy because that's what he wants. That He wants that fully guaranteed money, and we don't want to give it to him. And if nobody gives it to him and he doesn't negotiate with any other teams and no teams agree to a deal and give up two first-round picks, he's just going to play on that price tag that he's getting with the non-exclusive franchise tag. So I'm not saying there's, – there's a word that can be used here, and I'm not saying it, but you could see something that's going on here where the owners are collectively saying, I don't think we should give this guy a fully guaranteed deal. Nobody do it, and we'll be fine, and Jackson will play on the tag, and we'll you know kick this can into next year. There's a word that begins with a C that could be, you know, used in this situation. I'm not saying it. You can say I'm wearing my tinfoil hat a bit here, but that's my take I, on the situation. I'm not inherently disagreeing with you in your tinfoil hat. Um, I, I definitely think 
that there there's certainly a word that begins with the letter C that we could use here to describe what's happening. And there are a number of reasons, you know, both football-related and non-football-related that probably have to do with it, but let's stick with the football-related stuff. It, one of the arguments is that Lamar Jackson isn't a very good passing quarterback, which is quite simply not true. Um, he doesn't usually put up more. He He's only had one 3,000-plus yard season passing, but that was that was his MVP season, and that was one of the two seasons where he started 15 of 16 games. Which it was still a 16-game season. He did lead, lead the league in touchdowns that year. His completion percentage every year, though, is has other than his rookie season, has stayed in the mid in the mid 60s, which isn't amazing, but it's good. That's what that's what you expect out of a starting quarterback. And his touchdown to interception ratio. Other than in 2021, has been very good every single year. Um, so, in terms of passing the ball, and he's had a most he his quarter his passer rating, other than his MVP season where he had a 113.3, has been like 90s or high 80s. So, in terms of his pure passing quarterback play, he has been very good. He hasn't been necessarily in the elite echelon of passers, but he has been a very good passer. So that argument doesn't really hold any water. The other argument is that he's been pretty injury prone, which isn't which also isn't entirely true. He started fifteen or sixteen games in both twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. Obviously in twenty nineteen, you know, they made the playoffs. They were the best team in the league, best record. So he sat out the final game. Had some injury issues. He missed five games in both twenty twenty two and twenty twenty one. But that's not really that abnormal. I mean, just have and especially when you're a running quarterback, when you're a a quarterback who runs a lot, you know, mobile quarterback, you're going to rack up some injuries. And for a mobile quarterback, I feel like that's a pretty good track record. So it's not necessary. I don't necessarily think that those are good arguments but, to make. But does a team really want to invest that much fully guaranteed money into a quarterback who's going to start 11 games a year that, and has only won one playoff game in five years? That's a good question. But I, I want to say, I want to say that in. I think the bigger argument to be made, you know, in terms of on the field performance is not that he isn't good enough at playing the quarterback position or that he's too injury prone. I think it's that he his strengths are definitely as a rushing quarterback. We know this. He's a good passer who has elite running abilities. And I think the problem is that there are enough quarterbacks in the league now who can run at least almost as well as he can who can throw the ball better. And even if they can't run as well as he can, they can still throw the ball better than he can, which makes which makes it difficult because he is a good quarterback, but is he better than guys like, Josh Allen, like I mean, Daniel Jones is probably in in some ways a a better passing quarterback than Lamar Jackson. The numbers don't always show it, but he he has better technique when he throws. Right? I mean, Lamar Jackson has a bit of a has a bit of a a gunslinging technique to him, not not quite as controlled. He has put up very good results, but. 
I think I think the problem for Lamar Jackson is that not everybody is willing to take a risk on him in terms of on-field production. But I I do believe that the argument that he's not a good passing quarterback at all or that he's too injury-prone, I don't think those really hold water. Now, of course, I think there are probably other reasons why teams might not be interested in signing Lamar Jackson that go beyond just on-the-field on production. I'm not going to speculate into any into what any of those are and how big, how much of an impact those things might have because obviously we don't know Lamar Jackson personally. We don't know what goes on inside the locker room. So Yeah, there's one know. thing we can say, though, that's different with Lamar Jackson than most <laughs> other athletes. He does not have an agent, and I think that, that – I'm not saying that's Teams affecting – Teams don't like that. Teams yeah, don't like that at all. Teams don't like that, and it's also hurting him too because as much as agents sometimes can be intrusive – and maybe overbearing at times. Baseball is a prime example. Scott Boris seems to represent every single Major League Baseball player. You need it if you're a player, especially someone like Lamar Jackson, who has so many drawbacks that come up about him. You need someone who can represent you, and him going at it by himself, it's, it's not helping his cause. I think it's admirable, but the problem is most NFL teams don't trust that players know what they're talking about when it comes to money and contract details and they they tend to trust the agents because you know that's their job to work with money and work with contracts for professional athletes so regardless of whether or not the athlete is qualified to be a part of those discussions and discussing every minute detail of a contract they don't trust that players are are qualified to do that so they don't even really want to entertain the idea of giving them the money that they want giving them the things that they want in those contracts because they just assume that the players don't know what they're talking about and they would rather talk to an agent who just by virtue of being an agent would be more would be more convincing and more trustworthy i'm not saying that's fair because it's not but that's just kind of the way things go when it comes to money and stuff like that and here's the thing with that narrative that Lamar Jackson is not a great passing quarterback it's not like he's you know been in that system like Patrick Mahomes where he is able to thrive with you know a spread or an air raid type of a type of game plan you know their offensive coordinator for the past few years and has been for pretty much since Lamar Jackson started got the starting job in Baltimore has been Greg Roman and Greg Roman has kind of a, a reputation as an offensive coordinator for coordinating those, you know, run-heavy offenses that eventually get stale and people figure out. It happened when uh, Colin Kaepernick was the starting quarterback in San Francisco, and that eventually led to him getting, you know, canned from there. And now it's happening again where he was let go after the season. Um, and also, it's not like he's had the best weapons either. The Ravens have kind of consistently had one of the worst receiving cores since Lamar Jackson got drafted as they've leaned into that run-heavy, you know, type of game plan and scheme. Um, they traded Marquise Hollywood Brown for a first-round pick, and you know their most their their probably their best weapon was have has consistently been their tight end Mark Andrews. But on the rec- on the wide receiving core, it's been you know Rashad Bateman who's been dealing with kind of injuries and getting into the NFL uh, as as a young player. So this is that's the problem that I have is that he hasn't exactly been put in a situation where he has to be that you know Patrick Mahomes Josh Allen type gunslinger. And since they hired Todd Monken, and I guess we can go on the assumption that Lamar Jackson will be a Raven next year, at least right now as it stands, what it looks like to me. We can assume that, you know, Tom Monken at Georgia led a more pass-heavy spread attack, so we can see how they can work with that. 
um, now next year, and we can see what Lamar Jackson can do. Maybe they try to upgrade the receiving core in the draft or something like that. So that's the problem with you know saying that Lamar Jackson can't pass, which I think was even inaccurate even when he was coming out of Louisville. Oh, um, that was that was completely that was completely false. Even coming out of Louisville. Um, and I mean, he even made a point at the combine in 2018 to say, look, I'm not doing any of the running drills. I'm not running the 40 yard dash. You're going to, you're going to evaluate me as a passer. So he, he knew even back at the, at the NFL scouting combine, you know, when he was getting drafted, that, that teams were undervaluing him and he knew that he was better than everyone was making him out to be. And I believe that's still the case, but you know, I mean, it. When you develop a reputation for being the best running quarterback in the league, you are also going to develop a reputation for not necessarily for for not really being a good passing quarterback. That's what happened with Michael Vick. That's what happened with Robert Griffin III. Didn't really happen with Cam Newton, but he was just so much of a freak athlete that people had no choice but to acknowledge him as just being a good all-around quarterback. But, I mean, it it's what ha- tends to happen, and now it's happening with Lamar Jackson. He's just going to have to navigate this as as a player and as a person. It's, it's, it's a tough situation to be in if you're him, but it's also what he's going to have to deal with. It's... We are we are currently in a league where having dual threat and mobile quarterbacks is now kind of the norm, but we're not quite at a point where teams are going to start saying, oh, yeah, having a quarterback that tends to be more run-first is still re- just as valuable as having a pass-first quarterback. There's one other point that needs to be made here about the Ravens. Um, you can't take the eras that the Ravens have had over the last 20 years where they've won two Super Bowls as mutually ex- exclusive because – the Ravens have had a pretty consistent coaching staff over the last decade or two. Ozzie Newsom has been one of the prime executives for the team for the last 25 years. And the two times the Ravens have won a Super Bowl before, they have done it with a quarterback that was not making a ton of money and was not a big star. It was Trent Dilfer in the early 2000s and then Joe Flacco in 2012 in the Harbaugh Bowl. And... Both times, they relied upon their defense. There are certain franchises that have had the history of having team success without spending big money for star quarterbacks. Baltimore is one. San Francisco, to an extent, is another. The Rams, to an extent, when you think about Kurt Warner, Jared Goff, Stafford, are another. I think Ozzie Newsom goes under the philosophy that you don't need to spend all this money for a big quarterback. They are a team that believes if you have a good defense that can lead the league and then have some weapons. I mean, the Ravens team that won the Super Bowl in 2012 did not have tons and tons of weapons. And if you can just throw those pieces around and have some different help there, you can survive with a mid-level quarterback. And that's what Joe Flacco was, and they won a Super Bowl. So I think there is a lot of hesitancy that is reasonable from Ozzie Newsome because he's seen the Ravens well, win Super Bowls before with iffy quarterbacks. So why waste a bunch of money here I'm, on I'm a good, gonna, on a really good quarterback? I'm going to correct you here because I believe you're correct in the sense that this was probably the mentality that Ozzie Newsome was going with 
when he drafted Lamar Jackson initially in 2018. But let's also remember that that was Ozzie Newsom's last first-round pick as a general manager. He's no longer the GM of that team. He is not the GM, but he is still a he is head still an executive. executive. He is, he is a still head executive, executive with but the team. He's not the GM anymore, so he doesn't have as much control as he used to. So it's it's important to remember that that this team, you know, that John Harbaugh and the current GM Eric DaCosta might be looking to go in a different direction than Ozzie Newsom necessarily intended when he drafted Lamar Jackson and now with you know Lamar Jackson going into free agency within the next year. Uh, a but, qu- but a, one a thing quick I d- update. Yeah, go ahead. Because we just had a final in the Big East tournament. Yeah, DePaul we've been watching has it taken here. down no, Seton Hall. I don't think they did. Because, oh, they okay, didn't? so we'll recap what's been going on right now. I've been watching this for the past couple of minutes. Seton Hall was up five with a few seconds to go, with about 30 seconds left, and they collapsed. Um, they, okay, so I, I'm watching it right now. So DePaul hit a deep three and then almost got the inbound back, uh, and then Seton Hall shot two free throws, and then, yeah, so it was a two-point game. Uh, Seton Hall fouled DePaul on a three-point shot, and they made all three free throws, so they're up one. And then somehow Seton Hall managed to drive all the way to the basket for an open layup. It got blocked, and then they called it goaltending. So right now now, they have to review it. Oh. They're currently reviewing to see if it's goaltending or not. Well, we are about to have a final. It will either be Seton Hall winning 67-66 or DePaul winning 66-65. We will find out in a moment, but just an update that this game is going to be won, won by just one point by either DePaul or Seton Hall at the last second. Yeah. This is a crazy Madness finish. at the Mecca. Yeah. I, at Madison March Square Madness. Garden. March Madness, man. This is March. Uh, grab this your is, nitroglycerin this is March. pills. Yeah, grab your nitroglycerin January, pills. February, Izzo. Uh, April, oh, there! It looks like DePaul head coach Tony Stubblefield is celebrating. And they have going taken into the they've taken the points off the board for Seton Hall. Wow. So DePaul has won. <laughs> wow. Okay, so that was crazy. That just happened right now. Uh, I hate to get sidetracked with the NFL talk, but I was like, I mean, uh, you got the listeners can't see it, but I was like doing all kinds of hands. I was throwing my hands up. I was like <laughs> looking all shocked. Uh, G- Gideon and Eddie were probably really confused right now. But <laughs> I pulled up the game after after your, your the third time your jaw dropped. I was yeah. like, all right, I'm I'm clearly missing something here. <laughs> yeah, I need to so, get on this. Um, Seton Hall's I'm sitting right next to. Alex oh my so god, how crazy screen. would it be if Rutgers played Seton Hall in the NIT? It's probably that would be happen. hilarious, honestly. Yes, part two. Shout out the RU Screw podcast for thinking of that kind of possibility when it was going to be Penn State and, and Seton Hall, but now it might be Rutgers. They are the Hall. sickos that would think of something like that. No, on, yeah, because they they did think of this. I'm not on that, but I listened to it. <laughs> oh, wow. Apparently, you can goaltend a shot if it's after the final buzzer, which I didn't know. I don't know if that's actually a rule, but anyways, yeah. So that's. Uh, it's our NFL segment. We talked about some of the franchise tags and whatnot, so I guess we can we'll take a, a I have quick to say I have to say one more quick point to Jake though. Okay. Because I have to double refute. He refuted me, so I am now going to rebuke his Ooh, point. Okay, wow. Because Damn. Eric DaCosta has been with Baltimore like Ozzie Newsom in their front office since nineteen ninety six. They have both been there, and he was the assistant GM under Newsom from twenty twelve to twenty eighteen, including when Lamar was drafted. Okay. So they've both been working together. So I don't think the philosophy is gonna change that much between the two. Okay. That's all I got. That's say. fair. Go we'll, ahead, we'll see. We'll see what happens then. Yeah. So uh, I guess with that, we'll take a, a quick break, and on the other side of the break, we'll have our final segment, rapid fire. So be sure to keep it keep it tuned for the on the uh, Wednesday edition of the WRSU Crew. You're listening on 88.7 WRSU FM, New Brunswick, or online at wrsu.org.
rapid fire here. WRSU Wednesday crew final 12 minutes. Of course, we just talked about it. It did, in fact, go final. It is official. DePaul has beaten Seton Hall. Maybe we'll end up with Seton Hall. Rutgers, a rematch in the NIT. Let's hope Rutgers can make the NCAA tournament. Though. God, please no. Please no. Let's... Well, We'll see. We'll see. Uh, one team that's probably not going to either of those is Syracuse. And even if they do make the NIT, it will not be with Jim Beheim, who, let's just say, is gone. We don't exactly know it's what the ramifications it's so, are. So if it was weird. a firing, a retiring, a mutual parting of ways. But it was not a good year for Jim Beheim. The team struggled in ACC play. He had multiple... Uh, bad encounters with student media in post-game press conferences, and they lost on a buzzer-beating three earlier this afternoon in the ACC tournament to Wake Forest. So that ends his tenure of 47 years. 47 years with Syracuse. It was That's only 47? Wild. I thought it was at least 102. To yeah, show exactly. how crazy <laughs> that is, the last game that Syracuse played where Jim Beheim was not the head coach was against Texas Tech in the first round of the 1976 men's basketball tournament in Denton, Texas at the UNT Coliseum. And that same day, Rutgers won their first round game against uh, Princeton in Providence in the East region in the NCAA tournament the year that the Scarlet Knights made the Final Four in 1976. That is the last time Syracuse <laughs> men's basketball wow. played a game that Jim Beheim was not the coach of. Wow. That's, that's wow. That's so what you're nuts. saying is... Steve Miller what you're was also a student in college when Shout out Jim Steve Beheim. Miller. Wow. Yes. What, what you're saying is that we're making the Final Four this year. <laughs> you could say that. You wow. Say I that. mean, look, every time that Jim Beheim isn't at Syracuse... <laughs> Rutgers has made the Final Four. So, the last... The last time just, he was the Syracuse. Now yeah, I, I just put it out there. I kind of want to talk about how like strange it was, how that how this whole thing went down, because Beheim has been asked, you know, kind of countless times, which makes sense, uh, about his future as head coach of of, uh, of Syracuse. Um, you know, since he's been there forty seven years, they're really struggling this year, all that kind of fun stuff. And he was he, he's always kind of you know kind of played coy about it, being like you know it's up to the school, I'll coach as long as they want me to, and all that. And he was asked today about it, of course, because the end of their season. He said, you know, it's still up to the school. And then he also said, you know, I made my retirement speech a week ago and nobody picked up on it. And then not an hour and a half later, a press release from Syracuse comes out that Jim Beheim's career has come to an end. And uh, we, I, I read the press release and it did not. It's two a little things, weird. Two never- things are missing. Two things are missing. One, it did not say Beheim is retiring. It just said his career is coming to an end as head coach of Syracuse. And, uh, by the way, he will be replaced um, by assistant um, – he will be replaced by assistant Adrian Autry, who played for the team in, in, from 1990 to 1994, assistant coach, so he'll be raised up into that new job. Uh, it did not say that he would be retiring, and there was also not any quote or anything from Beheim himself. So it's strange, to say the least. Do you think this means that he was pushed out? That it wasn't Jim Beheim said, all right, Calling it quits. I'm done. I don't think he. I don't think he got pushed out. I think it was him saying to the school, "I will coach as long as you want me to. I'm ready to go whenever you want me to. Let's just see how long this goes." Then the school said, "Okay, we're ready to move on." And he said, "Okay, let's move on." There is also a tweet that the Jim Beheim account sent out on Twitter. Now I don't know if Jim Beheim exactly sent out this tweet himself, but. It has quotes, so it was improved by Beheim himself back on February 6th. And he said, quote, as I've said many times previously, my employment at Syracuse men's basketball 
as Syracuse men's basketball coach, has always been determined by the university. I was asked about the possibility of retirement, and my answer was based on that. So, yeah, that that, that was adds my, some color to the theory that, that he did not retire. I'm pretty and sure it was I'm, a university decision. I'm pretty sure the day before something similar had happened, where he said, like, you know, will you retire at the end of this year and whatever, and he said, you know, it's based on whatever the school chooses, and it's a very interesting situation. But either way, I mean, a historic career, uh, Big East rival. Um, for a long time, they have fallen on some hard times the last couple of years. They actually managed to ditch their two, their patented two-three zone later on in the year, where it felt like the world was ending. When you know Syracuse playing man-to-man defense, that feels impossible. Um, so yeah, so that was. It, it'll be interesting to see how they do uh, under their new head coach. As a, as a Big East fan, I'm celebrating. Yeah, as, uh, as a college a, basketball fan, I am also celebrating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jim Beheim was never, never exactly known as the most. Um, at least in the media sense, the most you know personable or, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could say <laughs> that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I think it's also just class act. After some, exactly, class act is the word you're looking for. That he, I don't really think of him as class act. No. After some <laughs> amount of time, you do want to see a changing of the guard. Like, yeah. you know, I I go back to last year where we had two legendary head coaches retire and. Both Coach K and Jay Wright. Mr. K. Mr. K. Yeah, talk about another guy that's Mr. had K. a couple, um, maybe one or two. I, I wasn't I'm finished. Coach K. Yeah. I, 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 uh, and, you know, as sad as I was about Jay Wright retiring, I think it's probably better that he retired at, like, the top of his game as a yeah. coach, you know, while he still has plenty of life left to live after coaching because then he gets to do cool stuff like, you know, broadcast be a broadcaster calling games you know spend time with his family he's a terrific basketball mind too i've heard i've heard some of him on like you know color commentating studio shows all that kind of thing i mean that guy that guy's terrific in pretty much everything he does i mean that guy that guy is dressed to the nines wherever he goes always italian tailored suit absolutely perfect he's amazing he's amazing um but i i I feel like you see a coach go on for this long i mean he coached what was it what was it 46 47 years? 47 years. 47 years. Including like eight as an assistant. He's been with that team for almost six decades. He also I played mean, for Syracuse when he was at the school. Yes. Like that's, in in my in my personal opinion, that's a little too long. Yeah. Because that's just, I mean, because think about it. Let's go back to the NFL. We were talking about that just moments ago. Bill Belichick has been the head coach in New England Patriots for th- this is going to be his 24th season as the head coach and he'll call it quits when he's ready to call it quits and they'll let him go until he's done just like the Dolphins did with Don Shula but at the same time you know a guy's got to be done eventually I feel like you know in terms of Bill Belichick he should probably be done already I and feel like he's only be been good. there half as long as Beheim yeah. yeah, exactly. so. that already that's feels thing. like an eternity that's the thing. <laughs> it's only half as long as Beheim was at Syracuse which is insane because, and it's it's insane that Syracuse was as good as they were for as long as they were because m- almost no head coaches in any sport at any level are that good for that long. Jake, you were negative twenty five when Jim Beheim first took over as head coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I mean just just to put it in perspective in terms of relating to my life. M- my my dad and his family hadn't even immigrated to the states yet. They were still listening to the WRSU crew, wherever they were from. Yeah, my dad was nine. It's like it, it's been 
it's been too long, and I I feel like Syracuse should have made this move a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, like at, at least ten or twenty. Yeah. Yeah, to be completely honest, the team has not had that much consistent success since they've joined the ACC, especially not in ACC play. They've had a couple of deep tournament runs, uh, most notably two years ago, but I, I don't know. They, they they didn't have a ton of success, and I know they've played in two very difficult conferences, but and I know they won the one championship with Carmelo Anthony, but it, it, it hasn't been great, and now they're kind of boxed into a situation, and it's also kind of weird that the successor was same named so immediately too I, uh, yeah it feels like they had this you know lined up and ready to go for a while now so we'll see we'll see how Syracuse does in the future whether they'll stick with that zone or whatever I guess for our last topic for rapid fire before we close it out with the Wednesday edition of the WRC crew so last year at the UEFA Champions League final uh there was a bit of an issue between uh you know in between actually getting into the stadium uh, me and Chris remember that very well. Yes. It was the day of the uh, seven-hour lacrosse game, so me, Chris, Ooh. and Brian Fonseca were excited. All right, at least we got Champions League soccer to watch. Oh, oh. And then that got delayed because they couldn't get the fans in. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the, the, the seven-hour lacrosse Final Four that yes, Brett you, and I you were in studio you for? And Coach were you were interviewed producing. your dad? And yes. I was, and in, was, I was and in the parking lot. Line. Alec? I was in the parking lot. I called into halftime Fonseca from the parking lot. Fonseca was live on air from the game. For like an yeah. hour. <laughs> it was great. It was me, Chris, and Fonseca, and we were watching... Yeah. The Champions League. So anyways, yeah. WRSU moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So anyways, yeah. Um, there was an issue with getting into the game as uh, Liverpool fans really couldn't actually get into the stadium because there was such a giant rush into the stadium in Paris. So UEFA announced that they will implement a special refund scheme for fans who are most affected when accessing the stadium in back in May. Uh, refunds will be available to all fans with tickets for gates A, B, C, X, Y, and Z, where the most difficult circumstances were reported. In addition, all fans who, according to the access control data, did not enter the stadium before the originally scheduled kickoff time or who were not able to enter the stadium at all will be eligible for a refund. Finally, UEFA will offer refunds to all fans who purchased accessibility tickets along with those of their accompanying persons. So, um, let's see. Given these criteria, the special refund scheme covers all of the Liverpool FC ticket allocation for the final, around almost 20,000 tickets. That's that's a giant refund, especially for such a highly profiled event as the UEFA Champions League final. Um, so, and then it also goes along to say, due to the nature of the original ticket sales process, whereby Liverpool fans purchased tickets from Liverpool, not directly from UEFA, uh, UEFA has requested that the club implements the refunds to ensure personal data protection and ease of process. So, Pretty big news in uh, international soccer. I mean, that was a highly publicized game, and especially the incident that happened at the stadium. I mean, it was almost a stampede trying to get in for kickoffs. So they had to delay the kickoff, like Eddie was saying. We, you know, they're trying to watch the uh, UEFA UEFA Champions League final while the uh, while the soccer game while the while the lacrosse game was delayed. But you couldn't even do that. Yeah, it was it, that was a rough day, but uh, we we got through it, and at least those fans are gonna get those refunds. And uh, yeah, but that was. That was that was a banner day in WRSU history between that and then the midnight baseball game. Those were oh, both yeah. on the oh, same that, day. Yeah. I got <laughs> home from Connecticut at midnight because I was visiting my grandparents who live in Greenwich, and there was still like 30 minutes until first pitch. Yeah, but uh, we will wrap up with that. Uh, Machine Age Voodoo is going to be coming up on the other side of this break. Um, but hope you enjoyed WRSU Wednesday crew. Reminder, tomorrow, 
Men's basketball, Big Ten tournament. Coverage starts at 11.45. Rutgers trying to move on. As for Seton Hall, have they been eliminated from the Big East tournament? Oh, yeah. Yes, they have. Seton Hall is out. They lose to DePaul. But for Gideon Fox, Alec Krauthammel, and Jake Maystell, you have been listening to the WRSU crew on a Wednesday here on 88.7 WRSU-FM New Brunswick and online at WRSU.org. Stay tuned for Machine Age Voodoo.